Well, this episode, we're going to go back to the Civil War. It's been nearly a year since the first time when we looked at the story of how slaves themselves ensured their freedom by refusing to be slaves anymore and running to Union lines, declaring their own freedom. And it was through that action, multiplied hundreds of thousands of times, that forced the federal government's hand up to and beyond full emancipation. But what we didn't talk about and what I want to zoom into today is how formerly enslaved people survived the war and what it was like behind Union lines. Because depending on where they were and what part of the war it was, freedom wasn't always automatic. Depending who was in charge, they got a wide variety of treatment. Even the most progressive of Union soldiers and Northerners still held racist beliefs about them that they acted on when confronting refugees. And it was in the middle of a war. They were seeking refuge in army camps during a very bloody war. And it was in this instability where day-to-day survival was a struggle and dangerous that former slaves first carved out their own freedom. It's a great story. And the focus of the book Embattled Freedom journeys through the Civil War's slave refugee camps. Written by Professor Amy Morell Taylor of the University of Kentucky, who is also my guest today. So thank you for coming, Professor. Thank you for having me. A quick terminology note is that formerly enslaved people who made it to Union lines were often called contraband. But both in your book and in this conversation, we're going to refer to them as refugees. I mean, contraband evokes property. And it was a term that at the time, there were people who came right out and said, this is not a term fit for a human being. So it's not one that I use. But historians have used it for a long time. So I'm trying to help shift us away from that language. Today, we're focusing on the transitional period between slavery and freedom during the Civil War. And a key place that I want to start is the way that because emancipation was not in the original plan of the Union Army, and actually Lincoln explicitly sent them south saying not to liberate slaves and to send them back if they did flee, from the beginning, the aims of the Union Army and what military necessity dictated was not always aligned to the goals and aims of refugees of slavery. Right. That's kind of the story of the whole war, although it does gradually change over time. What's really striking is within days of the war breaking out, enslaved people in Florida, in Maryland, in Virginia start fleeing to Union Army lines. And this is despite the fact, as you say, the Union in the United States have said, we are not going to interfere with slavery in the South. We are not going to free enslaved people. And yet the enslaved people themselves see something in the United States and in the Union, see that this is their opportunity and they go anyway. And that's so striking to me. And it's that determination, almost this determination to make the Union come around to abolishing slavery altogether, to push them, is what we see happening from day one and what continues throughout the war. And indeed, the Union does come around. So a really powerful story of how the actions of people outside positions of power, of the most powerless in American society at this time, how by the force of their numbers, they can affect change. It's pretty incredible. It really is. And since the Union Army wasn't expecting this response from enslaved people, they really didn't know what to do. Yes. So some of these army officers write these letters up the chain of command, and you can see them at the National Archives today. And, you know, they're very formal letters, beautiful handwriting, all that kind of stuff. But they're expressing this, what do I do? They're all these people. And what they're particularly 
unsure of what to do about are the women and children. They can see a place for men, possibly, in this military structure. But then I've got all these women and children. And so these army officers, in some of their letters, they're really frustrated. They're kind of angry. They're saying, I'm supposed to be focusing on X, waging this campaign, and now I've got to deal with Y, essentially a refugee crisis, because there's so many people in their midst. And uh, yeah, they weren't prepared at all. And so the result is a pretty improvised response on the part of the Union Army. They don't do the same thing everywhere with regard to the people who are coming to them. And to talk about improvised, refugees from slavery, when they arrived at Union Lines, they didn't have a whole lot because they just fled slavery. Sometimes it was just the clothes on their back and the little bit of food they could carry with them, which meant that part of necessity was providing for basic needs. And when you say improvised, things like shelter, often recycled tents that Union soldiers no longer wanted to use. It was just like, let's give them to these refugees because they need somewhere to sleep too. Many of these army officers, they weren't inhumane. They recognized, well, these are people and there are some basic needs to survive that they have. And as you say, they couldn't bring it all with them. And so very quickly, some of these officers, even as they're frustrated, they realize, well, there's a need for food, there's a need for shelter, but they are in many places going to expend as little as possible to meet those needs. And they express from the beginning, we don't want to be feeding people for a long time. We don't want to take the resources that are supposed to be for the soldiers for these refugees. And so they're very skimpy. They want to quickly leave it to the people's own devices to feed and shelter themselves. And so one example you raised has to do with their shelter and their housing. And some say, okay, here are some old cast off tents that the soldiers aren't using anymore. Now they're not using them because they don't really do the job. You know, they've got holes in them. They're not protecting people from the elements. But the officers say, well, you can take these until you can build yourself another shelter. And think about it. It could be the middle of winter. It could be the rainy part of spring. You've got this holy tent. And one other thing going on where the army also dictated where they could set up their tents. And usually... Big surprise, it was the least desirable land that the army didn't want for any other reason. So it was often very low-lying land. It could be right by a stream where soldiers were cleaning themselves, using it as basically a latrine, and you've got to set up your tent right there. So this immediately just kind of raises just the physical experience of being a refugee from slavery in this war and just how hard it was to simply even honestly survive from day to day when you're in those conditions. The conditions were terrible. It was like, here's a bad tent until you can go build your own house because you're expected to like build your own shelter eventually. And where are you going to get the wood for that to build your shelter? Oh, yeah, because there was also the fact that the Union Army was also like, we're going to take the best stuff for us. So also here's like, the scrap wood that no one else wanted. Go build a house with that. Exactly. Or the soldiers have already cut the trees around to build their own winter quarters. 
So there's not even much in the way of trees around. And so some would find themselves having to leave and go a distance, maybe to a local town, find an abandoned barn or something and pull some of the lumber off it. But the more you drift away from the camp, the less secure that is. So that's actually a pretty risky thing to go and do. It's a really complex, hard process, even just to have some kind of shelter over one's head. And then when it came to food, Because it was kind of the bare minimum, women and children got fewer war rations just because they were, I guess, deemed to not need as much food. And I want to go back to what you were talking about, where the army was very invested in not having to provide for refugees for very long. There was this like ideal, if you are able to work, you should be out working and earning your own stuff, not accepting charity. Charity is for the needy. And they define needy in very narrow terms. (laughs) I mean, you have to be almost completely incapable of doing some of these things to receive food rations for an extended period of time. This takes us into kind of the mindset that is still alive today of fear that people will become dependents on the government and dependent on government support and welfare. And it's a very obviously race-fueled, racist assumptions there that are at work in the Civil War about you know formerly enslaved people. Some of these union officials are saying, oh my gosh, they might become dependent on the federal government. We've got to make sure that doesn't happen. But they're saying this in the middle of a war emergency, a time when people just don't have food and shelter. This is not the time to get worked up about some long-term dependency on the government, but they were. And this just shows you how sort of strong and endemic that fear is among particularly white officials in American government. And it's, again, kind of a timeless one. That's not even the only racism that shaped the way that refugees were cheated when they got to the camps. The assumptions they had about Black people shaped a lot of things. Back to shelter, they were expected to be in like single nuclear family homes, which that's not how families from slavery looked. They were often extended family structures and families had been separated. Community was a lot more flexible and a lot closer in a way that white people saw as improper. Well, some of these white officials, you know, they're coming out of this white middle class from the Northeast, a lot from New England. And they look at the nuclear family as kind of like the foundation of this country. And if you want to be a citizen of this country, you've got to conform to this family form because it nurtures the right kind of values and principles that a citizen should have. This is what they say. So you've touched on a central point then of contention between these white officials and this refugee population because, yeah, Some lived and had nuclear families, but others found that they had been sold apart by the slave trade. And so what we see people coming into the camp, it's a much more extended family, really important networks that they might call family, but these white officials did not recognize them as such. So we see this playing out when some of these camps start to become a little bit more permanent. And the army in some places starts providing more lumber to build these nice little homes. But then they really want to only see a nuclear family living in them. And that's just not going to work for the refugees. There's some other ways you see these 
same clashes. Like some places in Virginia wanted to make sure that as these communities were building better housing, that they had windows in them. And some of the freedom-seeking people coming out of slavery didn't want windows on these houses. It made that very clear. So what do they do? They still order window sashes from the Northeast, hundreds of them, and have them shipped into Virginia in the middle of this war. You wouldn't think that would be a priority. But in the eyes of some of these white officials, this is what a nice white middle-class nuclear family household looks like. You know, they say it's a public health thing, but a lot of it has to do with the look too. But somebody coming out of slavery who doesn't want them, well, we can kind of start to surmise why they might not. Put a window in and there goes some of your privacy. First of all, some of them feel like they're hiding still from a former owner or slave catchers who might come after them. They don't want to be found. These white officials who are telling them exactly how to live They don't want them like peering in the windows and surveilling their life. You know, this is their their own private space and this is something they're going to defend. So there's another moment here. We can list so many more. Clothing is another one. And if we're going to talk about clothing, the military didn't actually see providing clothing as something they were supposed to do. Food, shelter, yes. Clothing, no. So most of the clothes that ended up in these refugee camps were Northern donations, used clothing from the North, which is why white women had a problem with it because it was the kind of clothing that like middle to upper class white women wore in the North. And to see a black woman wearing that, they took offense at that. We see white Northern officials, particularly some of them women who get very upset where some of the formerly enslaved women want to dress a certain way. And some of these white women say, no, 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 that's not the way you dress. That's the way we dress. Wearing like a more fitted dress, certain kind of embellishments on it, a hoop skirt. They don't want to see a Black woman dressing like a white woman. They saw it as overstepping. They had all this language sort of for it. Like, you need to wear something that's more for your shape and form. Basically, they're policing this line between the races. They're policing and protecting white supremacy right here as they're trying to help liberate people from slavery. And that's something that, you know, maybe historians talk about a lot. But I think as I've talked about this research in this book, people more generally are surprised that somebody could be anti-slavery, but pretty racist at the same time. But it's a pretty central part of the story and I think helps us understand why the end of slavery didn't suddenly result in full equality across the nation. We've talked about that the conditions were sublivable, but something else is that they were very dangerous. We were talking about the fact that one of the reasons why they didn't want windows was that they felt like they were still in hiding. And that is a huge thing. The reason why refugees fled to union lines in the first place was because they felt like behind the army, they were safe. They were always looking for proximity to the army for safety. But as we talked about in our last Civil War episode, because laws about who was liberated changed throughout the war, things like the Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually apply blanket to the whole South, their relationship to the army was always in flux. It was. As you say, depending on what 
point in the war it was and where you were. So that's what makes this a really complicated story. But yeah, in some places, I'll just take an example of where I'm sitting right now in Kentucky. So Kentucky is exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. One of the last states to see emancipation come, it doesn't really come until the 13th Amendment for everybody after the war. Which, by the way, is also wild that Kentucky was just sitting up having legalized slavery until the 13th Amendment. I didn't know that. Yes. And the war's over. There's like an eight-month period after the war before the 13th Amendment. So there's like eight months in Kentucky. And the state is passing all these new laws to protect slavery as if they think they can keep it going after the war. That's a little bit mind-boggling, but it just shows you how desperate the white slave-owning class and a lot of white people, even beyond the slave-owning class, were to hold on. But anyway, back to (laughs) the Union Army. This is a leap of faith that anybody really, when they're fleeing to Union lines, they're taking a leap of faith, hoping that this is going to be a protective sphere to be in for this war. And in some places, it's true. And in other places, it's not at all. So in Kentucky, those who were fleeing for much of this war found themselves turned back by Union Army officials. They said, we're not emancipating here in Kentucky. You're not part of the Emancipation Proclamation. Union policy has not freed you. So we're going to send you back. Or sometimes they go so far as to allow slave owners to come into the Union camp and kidnap women, children, men, and take them back. And you can imagine that those scenes were not peaceful. You can imagine they were quite violent, and they were. And some of them, when they would kidnap them, would not just take them back to their former plantation. They'd take them down to the local slave market and try to sell them into the Deep South. All the while, the Union Army is letting this happen. There's an example of what you're saying. Just getting into Union lines was not always an act of gaining protection. Sometimes it was just the reverse. And there's many other examples as well, because you know, if you think about it, the army is just a collection of individuals. They've got policies, but individuals sometimes do things apart from the policy. And some of these individuals were not anti-slavery. You know, there were men who served in the Union Army who were perfectly fine with slavery continuing. And so they were happy to not only help a slave owner retrieve and kidnap his or her slaves, but some of them, the way they treated the refugees, just like slaves. It's a really complicated story. We can't paint all the Union Army with a broad brush. Yeah, the Union Army was not always just a beacon of safety for runaway slaves, particularly for women and children, because, uh, again, it was harder to see them as part of military operations. So they were more frequently turned away. And for women, there was still a big problem of Black women being raped by white men within the Union Army, which was actually the justification a lot of times for making refugee camps move further away because Black women are blamed as the problem for rape. So the camp had to move farther away so that there wasn't mixing. Yeah, in some places... It's exactly that. They think Black women brought this on themselves. And the answer is to put more physical space between Black women and white men. The most perverted take on this. But anyway, 
yeah, they move some of the women and children far away. They try to find some distance and sometimes put them on islands. We see this in the Mississippi River, like literally in the Mississippi River, these islands. In Virginia, there's an island called Craney Island that's not far from Hampton, Virginia. And it's one of the reasons they move to islands because they say, okay, this will be kind of this isolated place where now we can keep the white men you know, away or really keep the black women from tempting white men. You could argue this is a protective act because they are trying to stop rape, but at the same time, they're not calling it rape necessarily. And think about getting put on an island that was uninhabited before the war. You know, you're a woman with your children and, and many other women and children around you and maybe some elderly men and you're plopped on this island, the chances of you getting employment anywhere nearby are gone. There's not going to be much in the way of shelter already. You're going to be completely reliant on whatever food rations the army's willing to give you because there's not necessarily much on this island. So these are kind of hard places to be sent away to. Back to what you said, they were trying to find kind of a way of sort of manipulating the space of these refugee camps to cut down on rape. And wildly, these islands often didn't last long because of flooding. That's the reason why no one lived on them in the first place. And this wasn't helped by the fact that the Union Army often told the refugees to cut down all the trees on these islands and sell the wood. Or, okay, so there were islands, but another solution to let's make the women and children useful was to send them back to the plantations. Because the Union, another thing that they were concerned about was the economy. Because Southern Cotton was huge economically. so. After they got the Confederates to leave plantations, they would send Black women and Black children to these plantations to work them. They were supposed to get wages. That didn't always happen. So the other place that Black women and children ended up usually were on random plantations farming cotton. Yeah, this is along the coast of the Carolinas, somewhat in Virginia, but especially in the Mississippi River Valley, especially in the heart of the cotton country, as you say. You've got not just the textile industries of the Northeast, but the Northern finance people who've invested in slavery, the insurance companies. I mean, there are all sorts of people in the North who are invested in this cotton economy. And so the U.S. wants to keep cotton cultivated and going. And so as the Union Army moves through the Mississippi River Valley and is occupying plantations, they start saying, okay, we're going to lease out these plantations, either to white people in the South who say, oh, I'm not Confederate, I'm a Unionist. They sometimes leased them out to Black people. Some of them had been free before the war or even formerly enslaved. There are some there, but most of them are these Northerners, what we would come to call carpetbaggers, eventually, who come in and start leasing these plantations. And the government says, okay, leasee, man from New York, who's come down to now lease this plantation in Mississippi, we're going to send you women and children and some men to work your plantation. We're going to set some ground rules because you can't reinstitute slavery. And so their ground rules are you have to pay wages, limits on hours, and you can't use a whip. But those are some very basic ground rules. And as you say, the women and children went back on plantations, harvesting cotton, and at times weren't paid. because. 
how is the Union Army going to enforce all these regulations when these plantations are spread out over a vast space and they've got a war to fight? So the enforcement was kind of lax. And some of these leasees of the land, they just wanted their cotton. So they kind of quickly like fall into this slave owning mentality, even as they're on the side that's fighting slavery. So some of these plantations, the other problem with them is because they're in remote areas and there isn't a lot of union enforcement or protection, they become targets for rogue Confederates, for Confederate guerrillas who look at this, whereas the women and children might see themselves back into something like slavery, the Confederate guerrillas see, oh, the union's running this. This is some kind of new freedom thing. This is what we fear. And they start attacking. And so these leased plantations become the targets of Confederate guerrilla violence. And that is really devastating and really horrible. It's lucky in some places if the women and children can make it out alive. That's how grim it becomes. So this is a really messy part of the story that just underlines that even those who flee slavery, their path to freedom is not like this straight line. It's not even like surprising that enforcement of non-slave conditions was lax on plantations when the Union Army didn't even put the effort into protecting them from constant attack. Eventually, the Union starts putting more Black troops to guard these plantations, some of them. And so that creates an interesting situation then, because what you have is this battle between white South and Black freedom seekers. It's a Black-white literal battle in the war. And that's what starts to rage in the Mississippi Valley. We're here, formerly enslaved people are literally fighting their former owners. I think we should back up a little bit. There were Black soldiers, but Black men were not immediately allowed to join the army. At the beginning of the war, those first refugees who arrived at Union camps, not only were they not actually just like immediately freed, they also were not allowed to join the military. They were expected to be earning their own provisions. So they had to find work, which was a challenge because not everyone when they arrived at Union camps thought that formerly enslaved people should be earning wages for work because they were still viewed as property. I mean, they were called contraband. The idea of paying them was not a universally agreed upon thing. Some Union officials just thought, hey, we've gained our own slave population. Let's put them to work. There were others, and this is where we can't paint the Union Army with a broad brush. There were others who said, no, we have to pay them. We have to abide by our free labor system that we are essentially fighting to protect and defend in this war. What tends to happen in the early part of the war is men come into Union Army lines and they seek work and they want to quickly start earning wages and start saving them so they can start building a new life. You know, it's kind of like one of the first things after food and shelter that they're thinking about. So by and large, the union on the surface accepts the fact that they need to pay wages for men who are digging trenches, working as cooks, building military roads, some of them working on the ships, work that supports an army. On the surface, the union says, okay, we're going to pay them. But it's one thing to promise wages and get a man to say, okay, yeah, I'll work for you. 
it's another thing to actually pay. And that's what's not always forthcoming. And so Virginia, in the first year of the war along the coast around Hampton and Fort Monroe, where there's a pretty large refugee population, men and some women are working and they're promised wages, but they're not getting paid, they're not getting paid, they're not getting paid. So what do they do? Well, they start to speak up. They band together. They hold mass meetings. They go to military officials and dictate petitions And they basically say, this is not the deal. You know, we need to be paid and compensated for our labor. And eventually that pressure becomes public. It makes its way into the press and into the media, which is a really effective strategy. And ultimately the union comes around and cracks down on the local military officials who weren't paying and says, you've got to pay. And here's a new set of orders that outlines how you should pay. And this would continue to be a problem throughout the war. There's always going to be people locally who don't implement what they're ordered to do, which is to pay wages. But that was a pretty interesting moment early in Virginia where the refugees recognized the power of their numbers and that they had a voice that would get listened to and was heard. And they did affect some change. Collectively bargained. That's that's actually super cool. They did. The key is that one of their members, a minister, befriended a northern missionary who had showed up in town. And the two of them hatched a plan to send this minister, his name was William Roscoe Davis, to send him into the north to preach at various abolitionist churches. And he went all through New York and Boston talking about what was happening down there in Virginia. And that was what got a lot of the attention. So that's a really interesting moment. There was that really cool moment of collective bargaining, but there were also other ways to deal with not being paid wages. Refugees, if they were in a job and they weren't getting paid, they would just move to another job. They finally had the freedom to work somewhere else. So they did. Or they even like there were situations of entrepreneurship. They would open their own stores. They would like start their own little garden and sell their vegetables. They would figure out how to make money in these really odd conditions. Absolutely. I write about a couple, Edward Whitehurst and Emma Whitehurst, who open a store there in Hampton. And I was really struck by that. I mean, here are people coming right out of slavery. And they do for a few months. They each work for the Union Army and the hospitals there. But then they very quickly open the store selling the goods you described, various foodstuffs. And I remember being like, wow, you know, it's not easy to open a store. Now, maybe I'm looking at this from a very 21st century perspective, but you do need some capital. You do need stuff to sell. And I did dig in to try to figure out how did they do it. In their case, they had saved some money already, probably to purchase their own freedom, which some enslaved people did. And they were able to save it because of Edward Whitehurst had been a hired out slave. He was sort of rented out before the war. And as part of the deal, he kept a small amount of what he had earned. So they had some savings and they put it into a store, which pretty amazing thing, especially in the middle of a war zone. It seems like a risky thing as well, but it actually turned out to be very smart because there are tons of soldiers that are flowing into the region and they're hungry and their food rations aren't enough. It was a smart opportunity to, to really start making some money quickly. Until 
it's not a story that goes well for them. Eventually, the military is like, this is stuff that we want and just kind of raids their store. Yeah. When the Whitehurst opened the store, they are claiming to own property. They own all the food. You know, they own maybe furniture in there. And those in the Union, white U.S. soldiers who were in that group that was not particularly anti-slavery, shared some of the same ideas as white slave owners about Black people. Ideas like property doesn't own property. So they did not respect the property rights of the Whitehurst at all. They didn't respect their right to own a store. They didn't respect their right to even say that the flower in the store was theirs or the pig in the side yard. And about a year after the store is in business, there's a big influx of soldiers from Richmond where they've just failed in a campaign to take the Confederate capital of Richmond. So these U.S. soldiers, they've just failed. They're kind of demoralized. And they're hungry. Got to acknowledge that. But they decide, instead of all the million other ways where they could legitimately get food and feed themselves, they decide to walk in to the Whitehurst store. They pull up in wagons. They get out of their wagons. They walk in and they just start taking everything from the shelves. And they have a sergeant there who's overseeing it. So an officer is overseeing it and is letting it happen. In one day, in one afternoon, the Whitehurst lost everything. And again, this is the U.S. Army that's doing this, not the Confederate. They're supposed allies. But again, there are racist limits of what many of these U.S. soldiers are willing to do on behalf of the cause of enslaved people. In this case, they could not see them as people who had any right to own property. And that idea that property cannot own property meant that when refugees did have things on them when they came into the camps... The Union Army was like, well, this belongs to us now. So those who didn't just have the clothes on their backs ended up with just that because they weren't allowed to possess anything else. Their allies are taking essentials. Some people fled slavery very spontaneously and probably just ran off without much. But others planned a little bit and would leave with a horse, mules, maybe a wagon where they'd put people, maybe some furniture, food, clothing, some basic essentials, or maybe it's not essentials. Maybe it's just things that meant something to them, something meaningful that they had an attachment to. And when they would roll into Union lines, much of that property would be taken by the U.S. Army. And sometimes Union officials justified this by saying, okay, maybe you're not a slave now, But back on the plantation, you were, and therefore any property you had was really the property of your owner. So that chair that you brought or, you know, the food that you brought was really the property of your owner. And so now in a time of war, the Union Army has the right to take Southern white people's property. It's not really yours. And so they would seize it as part of their prerogative in this war. But of course... It's really just, again, an unwillingness to accept that Black people can be property owners like any other citizen of the country. And that logic did not work for refugees. That was liable to get them like validly shot. If they tried to go repossess Confederate property with that same justification of like, we're at war. There's a case you talk about in your book where some people get shot for doing that and the plantation owner goes unpunished because that was considered theft, not military necessity. 
Yeah, some of them are black soldiers that are like foraging for food on a Confederate plantation. And the owner of that plantation kills them. Or in other cases, maybe goes to the U.S. Army and is like, these people have been stealing from me. The U.S. Army listens to it and punishes these black soldiers. But if white soldiers do that, white U.S. soldiers go foraging on Confederate property. Oh, that's okay. They're part of this Union Army machine that can raid Confederate property. That's fine. I think it underlines to us the importance of property owning, like the symbolic nature of it at this time. It meant a lot. White Southerners were say they were fighting this war to defend their property rights. Property owning signified citizenship. It sort of signified that you were kind of the independent person who had all the qualities of being an ideal citizen. So therefore, it was too much of a leap for some white people to take to accept that Black people could be property owners. So far, we've mostly talked about necessity when it came to arriving at Union camps. But you also talk about religion and education, which the military didn't think of that as necessity. They let refugees do that without much regulation or oversight. Your section about religion, super interesting, because one, the fact that the army was no longer regulating it meant that they could freely practice religion. But there's also this interesting part where you talk about a lot of the refugees who went to the camp weren't particularly strongly attached to Christian religion. That was work to be done to build faith in the community of refugees. Yeah, there's a lot of space, literally, in a camp for refugees to hold prayer meetings and, you know, essentially Bible studies and and sing. And this becomes, I write about a man named Gabriel Burdett here in Kentucky, who has been a minister while enslaved, did it in secret, but then also in a very surveilled kind of way in a biracial church where he was able to preach to Black congregants, but the white people really controlled what he had to say. And they at one point punished him because he overstepped, they felt. He was probably preaching a more anti-slavery message. So he comes in to Camp Nelson, Kentucky, and immediately can very freely preach the things that he has always tried, but found like he either had to hide or just suppress. So it's a very instantly liberating place for him amid everything else we've talked about, you know, all the risk and the violence and the surveillance. And yet there are these pockets and moments of true freedom. So he sets out to preach to other Black men who are at Camp Nelson. The women and children keep getting expelled and kicked out because that's Kentucky. And he's trying to convert more and more people because he is himself a Christian, but probably not even the majority of the men coming in would necessarily as identify as Christian or had not converted. And what happens is this is Gabriel Burdett's interest himself, but missionaries from the North, some black, but mostly white, come into these camps in the South, including Camp Nelson. And they start kind of working with Gabriel Burdett and men like him. Their motives are not quite the same as Gabriel Burdett's. They want to see people convert, not just as a basic act of being a good evangelical Christian, but I think they see it as, well, this is going to help sort of train this population to be good, responsible citizens. This Black population is not quite ready to be equal citizens. So we've got to make sure they're Christianized and we teach them to read and write if they don't already know. So this 
takes off in these camps and there are revivals. Not everybody wants to convert, especially when you have more white preachers and ministers coming in, because some of them see that as like no different than what their slave owners had tried to do. Many of them brought their slaves to their white church. They don't want that. They want something more organic to who they are and to what they believe. So it reflects very much some impulses that refugees brought into camp with them, but also, again, this kind of clash between their aspirations and culture and some of the racist assumptions of religious authorities. Loss is a deep part of the whole story. Refugees lost any possessions they brought with them when they reached Union lines. Whenever the army moved, they often had to just abandon any kind of permanent settlements they'd put up and follow the army because they didn't want to be left exposed to the Confederate guerrillas we talked about earlier. If more troops arrived where they were, they might be kicked out of their houses just because what they had built became military necessity to go to white soldiers. But the longest lasting loss was at the end of the war because this, again, military necessity deemed that at the end of the war, these refugee camps weren't a necessity. So they were just kind of abruptly ended. But this didn't happen without a fight. Refugees weren't just like, we built this, we're going to leave. They fought legally. They tried to buy the land they were on. And sometimes they just refused to leave. This was kind of their first taste of freedom and they didn't want to just abandon it. Yeah. I mean, what started off as a really rough refugee camp sometimes evolved into something that the residents could imagine as a new village or a town. This could become their new home, the anchor for their whole future as free people. Because some of these camps, people had built nicer houses, more substantial, permanent ones. Churches were going up, schools, even a road, in some places a park. So some of them really began to look like a town and a new community was forming there. For those who live in this, they imagined a whole new, again, future in freedom in this place. So the places themselves become really important and meaningful. But as you say, at the end of the war, the United States government does not want to see these places remain. And it's partly because they have no military interest anymore in helping to protect them and keep them in place. But there's also a political reason for it. The lands on which these places had formed were owned by white former Confederates. And President Andrew Johnson proves to be fairly sympathetic with former Confederates. At least he's very lenient in his terms by how they're going to come back into the Union. And one of the things that he says and orders is that lands that were occupied by the Union Army during the war have to be given back to the former Confederates. So now we have a situation where we have a community, it could be a several thousand newly freed people have built up this village, this town for themselves, but it's on the plantation and the former Confederate owner comes back and is of course not going to tolerate this. And so in many cases, a lot of these villages, they had to be quickly emptied. And when I say empty, that's a really kind of benign word because there was a lot of force and violence used. In some cases, they were burned down. 
So what you see is several years of building a new life, building a whole new community and anchor for freedom is like lost in an instant. And my book ends with this because I think you said it really well. Like it's almost like the final punctuation mark or the final exclamation point on what's been a story of loss all along. Freedom does not come in that straight line. It's not all about gain. There's continual loss all along. And there's a big one at the end, which I think tells us again a lot about why the years ahead would continue to be so difficult. Why with the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, we don't instantly have this integrated society that accepts racial equality. These losses really tell us a lot. I'm like looking at the title of your book again, Embattled Freedom. And that's, it captures that so well, that like freedom, it was like an uphill battle the whole time. An uphill battle that sometimes they lost ground. It was a battle fought by everybody, even the children going into some of these camps who are having to help erect a tent. They're just, everybody there in these camps are, by the sheer force of just wanting to live and survive in these spaces, they're fighting a battle. Everybody was fighting. And it was a fight. It wasn't something that just came overnight. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Lincoln didn't free the slaves. The slaves freed themselves, both by fleeing plantations and by surviving. If you like this episode, tell people about it. If you haven't listened to the Who Freed the Slaves episode, you definitely should. It pairs very well with this episode. And I'll power it all people, y'all. 